Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the stories news media tell are something different than the facts they report. The facts may say what happened where. The stories tell us who's the hero and who's the villain, how important the fight is and whether we should care about the ending. It's not always easy to discern, but it's critical, which is why narrative has been taken up as an important tool by folks looking to change the world for the better, in part by changing the stories we tell ourselves and one another. Sonali Kolhatkar is the host and executive producer of the daily radio and TV program Rising Up with Sonali and the racial justice and civil liberties editor at Yes! Magazine. Her new book, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice, will be published this month by City Lights. She'll join us this week on the show. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. Not so much surprising, but still depressing. The Wall Street Journal is cheerleading for hurting poor people more than they are already hurt. Some Republicans are upset that they didn't get to use the debt ceiling fight to push through all of the benefit cuts that they hold dear. But the Journal's editorial board wants them to buck up. As Connor Smythe explained for FAIR.org, the journal's board counseled that, quote, one reason the deal is worth passing, the provisions on work and welfare are incremental progress the GOP can build on, close quote. That's because the bill included an expansion of work requirements for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP for adults without a disability or children, raising the maximum age for those subject to work requirements from 49 to 54. The editorial's takeaway, quote, a major difference between the two political parties these days is that most Democrats favor a culture of dependency. The GOP's task, which is popular with voters, is to rebuild a culture of work, close quote. Well, it's an odd statement to make when employment for workers between 25 and 54 is at its highest level in more than two decades, thanks in large part to Democrats' decision to go big in the COVID relief package. It becomes perverse if you consider the utter lack of evidence for the idea that expanding work requirements for food vouchers increases employment in any significant way. As groups like the Center for Economic and Policy Research, among others, have demonstrated, there's no question that the work test reduces access to SNAP food vouchers among vulnerable people, but the best read of the evidence is that it has no impact on employment, or only a very small one. The journal thinks that's terrific, though it's not enough. Quote, one mistake in the debt deal is that the food stamp work requirement exempts veterans and the homeless. These Americans could perhaps most benefit from the dignity and stability of work. Close quote. Let the logic soak in. Allowing people minimal access to food resources is an indulgence that harms them. On the other hand, imposing punitive measures on people, forcing them to prove that they are working a certain amount each month, helps them. 
Rather than having food guaranteed as a human right, people should be threatened with starvation. That way they're insecure and willing to accept the first job that comes around, no matter how bad the conditions or the pay. Again, this is par for the course at the Journal, which ran a piece in May arguing that, quote, liberals in Washington have long prioritized making the poor comfortable over helping them out of poverty, close quote. But it's still disgusting. And it's logical garbage, because it isn't as though this country cannot afford health care or food. As economist Dean Baker has explained, Reducing the pay of just the five highest paid CEOs by half would generate savings equal to the entire SNAP budget. And waste in the financial sector eats up at least six times as much money as the SNAP budget each year. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Most of us have a memory about a time someone judged us based on things they heard about people like us. They couldn't, if only for a moment, see us as an individual because that view was clouded by hundreds of tales they'd heard about people with our skin color or clothing or physical ability. And... Most of us can also recognize that our vision of people we don't know has been shaped by stories we've been told. It's not a giant leap to see how that can affect our political choices and possibilities. Narrative is a tricky and significant thing, and the subject of a lot of important new work, including that of our guest today. Sonali Kolhatkar is the host and executive producer of the daily radio and TV program Rising Up with Sonali and the racial justice and civil liberties editor at Yes Magazine. Her new book, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice, will be published this month by City Lights. And she joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Sonali Kolhatkar. It's such an honor to be with you, Janine. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I've been hearing about the importance of narrative in social justice spaces for a few years now. And I want to ask you or or ask you to clarify, because it sounds soft. It sounds like meta phenomenon. You know, you can think, well, let's change facts on the ground and then we'll talk about what stories we tell about them. So I want to ask you to just respond. How do we define narrative and how do you situate that within what else needs to happen? Those are great questions. And it is a new front in organizing. And I'm really glad it is because as a journalist for you know a few decades now, I have seen the power of how narrative shifts culture and how culture then shifts the policy. We'd like to think, especially on the left, that if there is a wrong that needs to be righted, that all we have to do is make the case to the right people ardently enough, and it'll happen. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. And we find ourselves, especially today, at a time when white supremacy is 
so resurgent. And so it really was important for me to explore this idea of how our narratives are shaped. And it's kind of a simple thing because it's all around us. As human beings, it is extremely natural for us to have an idea of how our world works based on all of the things that we have been exposed to from childhood. And that is in storytelling, whether it's through mass media, the TV shows we watch and the movies we watch, whether it's in the communities we live in and so the people we interact with, classes we took in school or the college courses we took, all of that shapes our view of the world. And so narrative, this idea that intentional storytelling, which is how I define it, shapes our worldview is a very important way in which we can fight for a better world. And for journalists like me, that is where I am most comfortable because I engage in narrative work every single day. You know, the mainstream media likes to think that there's this myth of objectivity, but what they're doing is they're bringing in the narratives that they have internalized to every story that they write instead of identifying the narrative or even trying to change the narrative. So we have had racist narratives, narratives promoting racist stereotypes for so many years. In my book, I look through the history of Hollywood. I look at the right-wing shock jocks of the kind that FAIR has been analyzing for years and how they've perpetuated racist narratives and kept the culture of the United States, a nation built on white supremacy, kept that ideology alive in the hearts of far too many Americans. But our nation is changing demographically. And in order to fulfill the promise of democracy, people of color need to be seen as full human beings. And that's where narrative work to upend racist narratives and replace them with racial justice narratives comes in. So a lot of organizations are doing that work. A lot of storytellers are now doing that work. I look at how independent media has offered a counterpoint to mainstream media for years and changed narratives. I look at how Hollywood is being infiltrated by new progressive independent filmmakers of color who are finally getting the space, albeit still not commensurate with population, to tell their own stories and to tell the stories of people of color so that we are seen as full, complex human beings. I delve into critical race theory and college education and upending narratives through storytelling in print and even social media. And finally, face-to-face conversations, how we can really come together as a country. And I don't want to sound too idealistic. You know, as someone who's been looking at social justice issues for many years, in fact, it's been hard to not be too cynical. But in doing the research and writing this book, I found myself really feeling more hopeful because what's happening is as the demographic shifts are happening in this country, people of color are finally starting to feel less marginalized by speaking up, speaking out, and rising up, to quote the title of the book. So that's what I think about as narrative. And I really, I hope your listeners and Americans all around us start to see narrative work as important work that is a critical part of social justice work. It's really just naming something that's happening all the time. You know, I think that it's it's undeniable how language and how framing can change opinions. You know, I mean, years ago, when I was talking about affirmative action, there was research saying that when you talk to people about affirmative action, they're for it. If you talk to people about preferential treatment, they're against it. And a very basic level, it's about the words we use. It's about the language we use to frame and set up situations that we're talking about. So if we can bring it up to the present day, 
when you talk to people and you explore this in the book about diversity, that's one thing. When you talk about equity, it's about what pictures those words call up in people's brains and the idea that that is actually important and worth paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, context matters so much, right? Like, say, take the simple slogan, Black Lives Matter. For the independent media, when we covered this movement when it first started 10 years ago, it was not something that our audiences were jarred by because our audiences had already been conditioned to understand that Black Lives have not mattered in American history. But to an audience that has been exposed only to Fox News, or for that matter, even just CNN, Black Lives Matter, if they really didn't want to accept that the country is white supremacist, sounded like Black folks asking for preferential treatment, as if that term meant Black Lives Matter more than everyone else's. So context matters, history matters, and that's where the independent media comes in. And and words matter. So there was a campaign by Color Lines magazine, which I write about in the book, to pressure media outlets to stop using the word illegal when referring to undocumented immigrants. In fact, so many outlets were, and some still do, refer to undocumented people as illegals, not even illegal people, but illegals, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a dehumanizing term. And when you can dehumanize people, then it justifies treating them as second-class citizens, treating them as less than human. And so changing that language, which at that time was not seen as a really important part of work, but that uh, Color Lines pushed for, did help to change the narrative on seeing undocumented immigrants and as people, as human beings, and Associated Press changed their language. And you started to see that culture shifting. It doesn't mean that we've won rights for undocumented folks, but it means that we are on our way to doing so. And we have to keep pushing. So yeah, words matter. And I'm really glad you brought that up. So the I word has been called, right? And so there's so many other words that you can look around. And, and one of the things I want to do with my book is help readers and listeners identify narrative around them. When you're watching a movie, a Hollywood film, to be able to look at it with a critical mind and say, that's a white supremacist narrative. That's a white savior complex, you know, uh, the common trope that, you know, wow, here's a movie where the men have all the speaking parts and women are props or people of color are props. And it's telling the stories of white folks from white perspectives because the writers are white, the executive producers are white. And people of color, women who are marginalized in the stories are marginalized then in our culture as well. So we want people to be able to see those things more clearly for themselves and then commit to changing them. And to recognize that as much as you might think words are words and reality is reality, there is a way that changing the conversation can actually change the facts on the ground. It's a dialectic, of course, but there is a back and forth between if you're comfortable calling people illegals, you're going to have a certain kind of political conversation. And just to remove that from the conversation does actually have a material effect. I think that's important. Absolutely. Content shapes culture and culture shapes content. They work hand in hand. And one of the other things that I point out in my book, even though we may not think of it as a narrative around race, I have a whole chapter on it because I feel so strongly about it. It's called copaganda. It's not a phrase that I came up with, but it's a phrase that racial justice activists have used for a long time. And that is mass media narratives that portray police as the good guys. 
It's something that we see in Hollywood all around us. The police are the good guys. When they do bad things, they are the exception rather than the rule. And, you know, that's a kind of pervasive, insidious, cultural bedrock that then lays the foundations for pouring one-fourth to one-third of city budgets into police budgets. And when people say defund the police, what they really mean is take money out of police budgets and put them into the things that actually matter. Hollywood is a huge obstacle Mm -hmm. to the defund movement because Hollywood continually portrays police as noble, as do-gooders. And so it sounds jarring to those who buy into that narrative to sheer defund of the police. And if we start to change the culture on it, we can start to change the policy on the ground. Well, one of the things about the book that I appreciate is the naming of names. So often corporate media or just the broader culture seem to come to an idea and sort of swallow it whole as though they created it. And sadly, writers sometimes too act as though things sprang full grown from their heads. That ignores and erases all of the people, all of the organizations that have been working on those ideas forever. And in your book, you name a lot of people, you name a lot of groups. And it's not just about giving credit where credit is due. It's also about contributing to our understanding of how social change happens. If you don't support the roots, the tree is going to blow over. So naming groups that have been doing this work, naming media organizations, naming social justice organizations, it just seems so important. And it's one of the things that I assume you're doing as a choice in the book. Absolutely. I mean, look, I've been a broadcast journalist before a print journalist for a long time. And so the way I did journalism was providing a platform for other people to tell their stories in a way that furthered my agenda, which is social justice, and our common agenda, because the people that I interview with, by and large, are social justice warriors. And so, you know, helping to offer them a platform, helping to shape the conversation to best showcase the important work that they're doing. And so writing a book based on two decades of interviewing folks, I absolutely wanted to name the names and showcase and and quote from the people that have taught me about this work. It was important for me at the very end of the book to have a list of resources of organizations like FAIR that are doing narrative work, you know, organizations whose work I drew from in writing the book and who I hope will get all of the love that they deserve from readers who can walk away thinking, okay, these are the organizations that I want to look to for understanding narrative work and maybe participating in narrative work. So that is absolutely important. And I'm sure I've left out several, but there are so many and they're growing in number, which is what I'm really, really excited about is that there are more and more organizations that are growing in number that are doing narrative work, that are actively incorporating into their day-to-day activism uh, how they can shape the culture. It's not enough anymore to just have a press person or a communications department. So, for example, CHIRLA, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in L.A., made a film that showcases the work that they're trying to do, humanizing immigrants. And I interviewed Angelica Salas on, on my show about that film, And I write about it. It's called America's Family. I write about it in the book, how organizations are incorporating narrative work into their actions 
so that they can change the culture alongside the policy shifting that they're trying to achieve. Well, I want to talk about Yes magazine, which I've been reading for years. So much of the content of left or independent media is framed in conflict and framed about the enemy. Here's how the bad guy operates. We need to know this. Oh, here's what the bad guy did today. And it's very important. It's important to know. And at the same time, I so appreciate space given to talking about the people and the places that are day-to-day addressing and resolving the problems that plague us. But what is sometimes called solutions journalism is considered soft or unserious somehow. And I've talked about this with my former colleague, Laura Flanders, whose show is about spotlighting people who are making things work, who are solving problems collectively. And I just always think, you know, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding? I feel that more of media could be given to people who are making it work. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the many reasons why I decided to join Yes Magazine. It is very traumatizing and feeding cynicism to engage in crisis journalism, the disaster journalism. It's something that gets the attraction of people, which is why a lot of journalists do it. It's easy to fuel fear and use fear-based journalism. And indeed, there's so much wrong in the world that you never run out of things to cover that are kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. I found that as a journalist, I was experiencing sometimes secondary PTSD because my job was to not look away. My job was to look at the injustices, examine them. When I transitioned to Yes Magazine a couple of years ago, it was with the intention of trying to focus on the things that people are doing that are very concrete and the challenges that they face, but how they are realizing the solutions to the problems of the world, because those solutions have always been there as well. They just haven't gotten the attention they do because they aren't sexy, right? They don't attract the right kind of attention. And beyond peace, love and understanding, they are very, very concrete solutions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I just returned from a three-day trip to Atlanta, where Yes Magazine partnered with the Decolonizing Wealth Project on a conference focused on reparations. 20 years ago, reparations for black folks was seen as a pipe dream, as an idea too radical to be taken seriously. You know, Randall Robinson wrote about it, and then eventually ta Coates many years later wrote about it, and they helped shift the culture to where the idea of reparations now is not so far-fetched or not seen as so radical. You know, there's congressional legislation around it. And Yes Magazine was there because... We were covering all of the people that are helping make reparations a reality. We were talking to the members of the California Task Force on Reparations. We were talking to, you know, folks who are doing narrative work to make reparations possible. And to me, that's not just hopeful. It's essential. If we don't know what we're fighting for, then what are we doing fighting against something, right? It's so important for us to know the end goal that we can realize. X, Y, and Z are trying it out on this side of the country. Maybe this other organization can try a version of that to see the models of what's working so that we can realize our just world. That's essential. And so that's why I love working at Yes. (laughs) And then also just internationally, which is something that U.S. media often ignore. We are one world, but corporate news media 
hide that fact like it's their job. And the world kind of looks like the board in a game of risk in news media. But if we're looking at other examples and other things that we can look to and people we can be in community with, an international focus is also part of that. Absolutely. Unfortunately, our corporate journalists have internalized the narrative of national security officials. They've internalized the narrative that it's America versus the rest of the world instead of people in the United States and how they can be similar to or different from or engage with people in other countries and distancing themselves from the national security considerations of government officials is very, very difficult for Mm -hmm. corporate media to do. But yeah, for independent media, for media outlets like Yes Magazine, it's essential because there's so much more that unites us than divides us. Climate change affects all of us. Racism affects all of us. Misogyny and patriarchy affect all of us. The rights of children are important to all of us. And so, yeah, learning from one another is absolutely essential to undermine the injustices perpetrated by power structures, right? And so that bottom-up journalism and the bottom-up activism is where we really need to keep reminding ourselves to focus. Well, and then finally, it's so important to have spaces where you can have this kind of conversation, where you don't have to agree with everything that's said, you know, but you have to preserve a space to have the conversation, as imperfect as that space may be. So I guess I'll just finally ask you to do whatever shout out you have for independent media and what you hope the book will do in terms of how it lands with folks. Oh, thank you so much for that. You know, folks can check out my show, risingupwithsonali.com, where I do a weekly broadcast. If you go to risingupwithsonali.com, you can not only see the interviews I do every week, but also more information about the book, where you can get a copy of the book. It's really important. I really hope folks go out and support independent publishers and writers like myself. It's a small, very readable book. It's, I hope, quite inexpensive. I'll be doing a speaking tour throughout the country with a book launch in Berkeley at the Berkeley Public Library on June 28th, which I hope folks can come out to. I've lots of events in Southern California, where I'm based, also some in Seattle and Houston coming up. And so I really hope people can come out, have a conversation with me, have a conversation with someone else. Check out yesmagazine.org. And I'm plugging FAIR. Check out FAIR's work, please. Uh, you know, it was such a resource for me, and it has been such a resource for me for 20 years. I rely on, on outlets like FAIR, and, and no, Janine did not pay me to say that. <laughs> so, so please do support your in local independent media as well, wherever you are, your local bookstores. It's important that we do that. Well, we're all in it together. We've been speaking with Sonali Kolhatkar, host and executive producer of the daily radio and TV program Rising Up with Sonali, and the racial justice and civil liberties editor at Yes Magazine. Her new book, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice, is out this month from City Lights. Thank you so much, Sonali, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.